we've been doing is we've been in this series, this is our third week, and we've been calling it He Said What? And what we've done is we've taken some of the shocking statements from Scripture, and we've kind of been looking at them. Because the truth is, we all love the feel-good statements in Scripture. We love when Jesus says in Matthew, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, and we should. These are good statements. But then he also makes statements like, love your enemies. And how many know it's a novel thought, (laughs) it's a novel idea, but when you actually have an enemy, it's a completely different thing to live out. So that's what we've been doing. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a phrase, it's not necessarily a shocking statement, but I believe it's an extremely misinterpreted statement. It's a statement that Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, when he says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Show of hands, how many of you have heard this before? Like, you could ask somebody who has never been into a church, and you could probably, they, they'd probably be able to quote you maybe two Bible verses. This would be one of them, right? This would be one of them. When I typed into Google, the Bible says not to do what? Watch this. Throw that slide up, guys. It says, the Bible says not to, look at the first result. <laughs> the Bible says not to judge. It also says not to eat pork <laughs> or shrimp. <laughs> wear mixed fabrics, and some other crazy things, right? Okay, so we're all curious about this. Now, people go fanatical about this statement. Like, we we use it in arguments, right? Especially when we do things that we're not supposed to. You say, well, only God can judge me, right? We love it so much, we even tattoo it on our bodies. Hashtag no regrets, right? Like, you ever seen that tattoo? No. So what does this statement really mean? Um, Because in our culture, judge not is one of the most popular verses, and culture assumes two things about this phrase. It assumes that religion is private and morality is relative. So, So let me explain what I mean by this. We live in a world now where preferences has replaced truth. So in order, because our preferences has replaced our truth, whenever we're doing something wrong, we use this verse as a weapon so people can't tell us the truth. So it's kind of like KFC versus Popeyes, right? Like, in my opinion, now keep in mind, this is my preference, this is my opinion. I have no idea why KFC opened up a branch in Crowley trying to compete with Popeyes. Like, it was like almost when God came down, he sent us Popeyes chicken and the Holy Spirit. But I think Popeyes came first. Not sure. But, but yet again, we can argue about this all day. A preference. Some of you like an iPhone and some of you like Android. I'm sorry. <laughs> but what, yet again, what is this? This is not truth. This is an opinion. This is a preference according to what? My taste buds. It's a preference according to what you like, what you want, what you desire, what you find to work and be good for you. How many of you know we have an entire culture and nation fighting on TV over preferences, over opinions, over a lot of things that are not the truth? We disagree on things, and people, specifically Christians and non-Christians, use this verse in Matthew as a weapon. Well, nobody can judge me. Only God can judge me. Is that really what Jesus was saying? So here's what I want to do, and this is what we've done for, for the, throughout this series. Because everything that Jesus says in the Bible, there is always context around it. And, and so what that means, there's other things that he said when he says this verse. 
Now, what we're good at, especially Christians, is just pulling one verse out of the scripture, not considering the context behind it, and just applying it to life. So Jesus actually says a whole lot about this. So let's read Matthew 7, verse 1 through 6. So it starts off, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Verse 2, For you will be treated as you treat others. That's just him explaining what that means. The standard you use in judging is the standard in which you will be judged. That's a scary thought, isn't it? So here's what the scripture is teaching us. It says, how you judge people is how God will judge you. How you judge people is how God will judge you. In verse 3, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Verse 4, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your eye? I love Jesus. He never attempts to clean up his language. He just says, hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Now watch what he says. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. So here's what he's saying. Don't throw your truth to people who are already going to disagree with you. And don't care about what the truth is because they'll trample over you anyway. So if culture's verse is do not judge and you will not be judged, that's like the mantra of our culture, then Jesus ruins it for us on the very last end of the verse when he calls us pigs. <laughs> so Jesus is saying, treat other people how you would like to be treated. But what does he really mean when he says not to judge others? Because he can't mean that we are no longer to tell people the truth. Because all throughout the scripture, we see Jesus telling people that they're wrong. Here, here's, a, here's a scripture in verse uh, Matthew 22, verse 29. It's Jesus, you are wrong <laughs> because you do not know the power of God. We see his disciples telling people that they're wrong. Actually, John the Baptist lost his head because he told Herod that he was wrong because he was living in sexual immorality. So that what this verse is not saying is that we should discard the truth. It's not saying that we should throw it out, that the truth doesn't matter, and now culture just gets to live by their preferences. This is what he's saying. This is the big idea, number one. You judge someone not when you disagree with the person, but when you dismiss them as a person. This is when we start judging people. It's crazy. I read a poll the other day. It says when our president got elected in 2016, 60% of people got a new set of friends. Now, why is that? Because we disagreed on a position, and therefore we dismiss people as people because they have a differing opinion than we do. Do you guys see this happening in culture now? Like, we have created our own silos and our own sex with like, well, man, life just seems great. Yeah, because you're surrounded by people that agree with you about everything, <laughs> We're gravitating towards people that just agree with us on everything. And, and the truth is, we are better when we're around people that don't agree with us. We're, around, we're better when we're around people that may have differing opinions. So it's not judgmental when you disagree with somebody. It's judgmental when you dismiss them as a person because they disagree with you. Let me show you this in scripture. How many of you guys remember the story when that woman is caught in adultery and everybody's getting ready to stone her, Right? And so what does Jesus do? These famous words that he says. He says, okay, he who is without sin, what? Throw the first stone. Throw the first stone. Now, we can look at that text and go, well, see, Jesus just loved her in there and he never told her the truth. But here's what I want you to understand. You have to read the rest of it. 
it says, he is without sin, he is without sin, throw the first stone. And then when he bends down and he looks at the woman, he says, hey, what, do I judge you? Do any of these people judge you? No. Okay, then go and sin no more. So here's what I want you to understand. Truth without love will always fall on deaf ears. Always. So it's about what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether you're condemning them or judging them. This is what we have to get better at as a culture, as a people. It's not wrong to tell somebody the truth, but it is wrong when you tell them the truth and you sit there and go, I want you to just feel the pain of the truth that I just told you. <laughs> and you just stay there. I'm going to wait until you feel it. I'm just going gonna, gonna to look at you differently. I'm going to treat you differently. I'm going to make sure you feel the pain of the truth. But this is what's crazy. After Jesus tells us the truth, he turns sinners into friends. This is what we have to learn from, friends. That when Jesus tells people the truth, that when we tell people the truth, that when we confront somebody on something, that we no longer dismiss this person as a person simply because they have a differing opinion, but we look at them and say, look, I told you the truth, and I can still love you even though we disagree. My dad, who is one of my mentors, he's my pastor, love him to death. We could not be more polar opposite personalities. My dad loves football. My dad loves hunting. He loves to wake up at crazy early hours in the morning just to go set out decoys. What is wrong with him? Son, you want to come with me at three in the morning? I'm like, no, like nobody wakes up at three in the morning. to. Tr Many of you do. I don't. <laughs> he loves football. He loves hunting. I'm the polar opposite of that. I don't like any of that. But, but here's the truth. We've learned to find common ground. Why? Because we're people that love Jesus and we can find some common ground on that. Just because our preferences don't align, just because we don't have the same ideas about life or our hobbies or whatever it is, doesn't mean that we can't learn to work together. I don't know about you, but when I tell people the truth, the wickedness in my heart usually wants to stick around and make sure that they feel what I just told them. <laughs> I'm going to tell this person the truth and then I'm just going to look at them. And I'm going to make them feel the pain that they once caused me, right? But isn't that the wickedness in our own heart? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, that is judgment. That's condemnation. Jesus came to judge the world. He did not come to condemn the world. And so many times we trade those two out. Rather than giving judgment, we give condemnation. We make that person feel terrible for whatever it is that we're telling them. Big idea number two. Judging others points out just how ignorant we are of our own sin. <laughs> it points out just how ignorant we are of our own sin. What is Jesus saying in this parable when he's talking about the log and the speck? He's simply talking about hypocrisy. He's simply talking about, hold on, I know it's easy for you to point out all the things and other people that need to change, but he's saying, hey, go look in the mirror. Take a look at yourself. You, you see this all the time with kids, right? It's so easy to point out your kid's hypocrisy. So we were driving to Lafayette yesterday, and this is like, this is a common occurrence. If you have boys, you know that this is not funny. This is just life. So we're driving to Lafayette, and Eli's like, Dad, Isaac farted on me. Five minutes later, Isaac's telling on Eli. For, they're doing the same thing to each other. I'm like, you both are telling on each other for the same thing that you're doing to one another. This makes no sense. Like, it's easy to spot the hypocrisy in our children. Why do I share that? It's easy to look at other people and spot the hypocrisy, but it's difficult to spot it in ourselves. It's easy to look at other people and go, well, obviously, you're wrong. Me? 
No, hardly ever, <laughs> right? So what is Jesus doing in Matthew 7? He's confronting us for failing to grapple with our own wickedness. He's confronting us for failing to grapple with our own sinfulness. In Matthew 7, 5, it says, Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see what? Well enough to deal with the speck in your friends. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you have a log in your eye. He just assumes that you do. <laughs> He's not saying, well, if you have a log in your eye. He's saying, no, you have something there. There's something in your life that has to be worked on. Oftentimes, the reason that it's easy for you to spot things in other people's life because it's just an indication of something that's going on in your own. It's an indication of something going on in your own. I wrote it down this way. When we're constantly pointing out the wickedness in someone else's heart, that is the distraction that is keeping us from addressing our own. That's a scary thought to think. You ever sit down and you're, it's so easy for you to talk about other people? Did you hear what they said? I can't believe they did this. I would never do, I'd never spend my money that way. I'd never parent that way. I would never do that to my wife or my husband or da, 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 all these things. Oftentimes when we find ourselves gravitating towards this mentality, it is usually a distraction for covering up things in our own life and making ourselves feel better by somebody else feeling worse. And it's a dangerous place to be. So here's what I want to do this morning. Two different things. How do we know when we're judging? I want to go through these things and I want to give you some practical steps on how to get better at this. Number one, you know when you're making a judgment towards other people when you're more angry at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. When you're more frustrated at somebody else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. Watch what Galatians 6.1 says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, so you who have come into contact with this gracious God, you live by the Spirit, should restore that person gently, remember that word, but consider, remember that word, yourselves or you also may be tempted. So let's talk about these two words, gently and consider, because these pop up and these are extremely important to understanding this verse. It says gently, when you see somebody, when you're going to tell them the truth, when you're finally going to confront them, do it gently because harsh words have never converted anybody. You ever just like taken a beating from somebody, them waylaying into you and you just walk away, you're like, thank you for making me feel terrible. Like you've never done that. Or you'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to go lock myself in my room and pray. <laughs> like, you don't do that. You're angry at them now, right? But then why does he say consider? He says consider because before you go tell somebody the truth, you need to evaluate your own heart because once you consider, you can be gentle with them and have compassion on them because the wickedness that you're about to confront in that person is probably manifested in you at some point. And when you can see yourself in the situation, what happens? Now you have compassion towards that person. You begin to look at that person and go, man, you know what? I've been there. I've done that. I've treated her that way. Or I've said things that I regret. How many of you have ever been in a conversation and as the words are coming out of your mouth, you're wanting to pull them back? <laughs> see, when you consider, when you take a moment to pause, you begin to realize and you start to see yourself in other people. Parents, if you have kids, you'll understand this. How many of you have ever looked at your kid and go, oh my God, that is me? You, I've heard it said this way, the things that often most frustrate you in your children are usually the things that they're most similar like you. Why do you keep doing this? And then you look at it and you go, oh my God, that was me. 
I'll give you a little analogy. So this morning, my, my family runs in, and um, all my kids, they're running in, and they go, they're going to their class, and I see Peter kind of like sneak off. And, and Peter's kind of like, if you know him, if you've been around him, he's a hilarious, funny kid. He's also a little mischievous, um, which was just like me. He's very curious. He wants to know how everything works. We were at Gerard Park yesterday, and we were talking about feeding ducks, and, he, and he's asking me a million different questions, and he goes, Dad, so how big of a piece do I need to break off to feed the duck? Because I don't want to give him too big of a piece. He might choke and die. So how, how small? <laughs> I don't want to kill a duck, Dad. Um, I'm like, well, you're living in the wrong state, son. <laughs> you need to go like to the northwest or some hippie hugging tree where they don't kill ducks, okay? <laughs> so we walk in here this morning. I see Peter sneak off, and he's at, he runs up to the coffee table, and there's this pile of peppermints. And he doesn't look directly at the peppermints. They're right there, and he's like... Stuff, without failing to recognize, I'm looking right at him. I'm like, Peter! He's like... And, and here's what... It brought me back, even preparing for this message. I'm like, I cannot tell you how many times my dad caught me doing the same thing. The things that you're often most frustrated in other people, whether it's your children, your friends, your spouse, your husband, your coworkers, are usually the things that you're dealing with inside. And the reason that you're able to see them in somebody else is because you've walked in those shoes and you've experienced it yourself. So number two, the other reason that you know when you're judging is you fail to forgive. You fail to forgive. So this means you adopt this mentality of I will not let you off for what you've done to me, although you understand that God constantly lets you off the hook for what you've done to him. Now, this is a difficult reality to face because we say things like, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. How many have heard that? I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. You know what that means? I'll forgive you with my words, but for the rest of my life, I'm going to make you remember what you've done to me. You know what real forgiveness is? It means... I'll forgive you, but I'm going to do my very best to never bring up the past again. It doesn't mean that you physically forget the memory. It doesn't mean that you forget what somebody has done to you. It means that you go to a place where you say, you know what, God, I'm going to do everything that I can to not bring this issue up. You see this happen a lot of times in marriage. You could be arguing about your spouse didn't wash the dishes in the sink, and then all of a sudden you're arguing about how you haven't been intimate in six months. You're like, where did that come from? Right? Like, how did we just go from arguing about the dishes to arguing about sex to arguing about children to parenting? Like, where did all this come from? It comes from the things that you said, well, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. So every opportunity that I get in a fight with you, I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is leaving the past in the past. It doesn't mean that you forget it. It just means that, you know what, I'm going to do everything that I can to lay that to rest because I understand this one thing, that regardless of what I have done and no matter how many times I have betrayed Jesus, he still seeks me. He still runs after me. Number three, you cut off those who disagree with you. You know you're judging somebody when you cut off those who disagree with you. Can I just tell you this? And this is a problem in our culture. You are judging when you strongly disagree and dismiss a person and cut somebody off just because they don't have the same view about faith or politics as you. 
We have to be careful of this. Because if you look at our society and you look at our culture, we're, we're forming all these different groups where everybody disagrees with everybody. Like, I, my friends have to all agree. I can't be friends with so-and-so because they don't agree about this and they don't agree. So what? You know that Jesus was constantly around people he didn't agree with? He, he was constantly accused of being somebody that he wasn't. What are we, we talked about this last week. We talked about that he was constantly accused of this man eats with sinners. Why? He was ultimately killed because they didn't believe he was Christ. They made a judgment about him because they didn't think he was who he said he was because he surrounded himself with people that nobody was used to him surrounding himself by. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you compromise your belief or your truths or your convictions. Here's what I'm saying. If you remember anything that I say this morning, remember this. People are more important than your positions. People should be more important than your opinions. And if we're just being honest, the state of our culture, the state of our country, if we look at it, opinions have become more important than people. And we have to be careful of this because this is the primary reason that people don't want to walk into the doors of a church. Because people have elevated their opinions and their judgments over the care of loving people. People are not projects that need to be converted. People are people that need to be valued in a place where they can belong. A place where they can discover and find Jesus, regardless if they agree with you. Regardless if they look at your life and say, I disagree or don't agree with that. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Because here's what I understand. When I come face to face with the God who loves me, he will convict me. He'll share the truth with me. And if I'm, if I'm healthy enough to surround myself with other people who do the same thing, when, I, when they need to, they'll correct me as well. We have to learn to elevate people over opinions. The fourth and last thing, how you know when you're judging somebody, you gossip often. You gossip often. And this is the worst form of judgment because you can talk about people and they're not there to defend themselves. So here's what this means. It leaves you to assume whatever the heck that you want about that person. How many of you have heard like one thing about that person and by the time you're done, it's like they've killed 20 people before. You're like, what? And by the time you're done, you, this whole group of gossiping people that they've talked about, they've already assumed the worst about this person without ever knowing that person. Frederick Faber put it this way. He said, I find great numbers of good people who think it's okay to spew nasty gossip. They regard it as evidence of their own goodness. What does he mean by this? Let me simplify it for you. When we gossip, we're feeling bad about ourselves, so we talk bad about others in order to make ourselves feel good. (laughs) You see how that works? And let's just be honest. It works sometimes, doesn't it? When you can make sure that people are beneath you and below you and you could talk bad about them, what do you do? I'm not that bad. (laughs) I don't feel so bad about myself anymore because I just spent an hour talking about how terrible they are, right? So we have to be careful because oftentimes when you find yourself obsessively and overtly talking about somebody so much, it's often the thing that you're doing to distract you from your own heart. And what God wants for us is he wants us to have this head-on collision of the reality of who he is and what he has for us. Because if the gospel doesn't become personal for us, if it does not transform us, 
then, then we fall into just this religious system. And I'll be honest with you, Christianity at that level gets really boring and it's toxic. It's boring and it's toxic because now we're just following rules and regulations and it zaps and sucks all the fun out of life. But if it's like this personal encounter that you've had with Jesus that says, man, I've encountered a radical God who has forgiven me of much and I get to follow him, it transforms and changes everything. So let's make this parable practical real quick. How do we get to a place where we're not judging other people? How can we get better at this? Number one, make prayer your weapon. Make prayer your weapon. And and this is why I say this. I know this seems super spiritual, but it's important. Because only supernatural power can overcome a judgmental heart. Because when you have a judgmental heart, here's what's happened. You have taken a certain pair of lenses and you put them on and now you view the world this way. And if you're not careful, you don't even realize that you're being judgmental anymore. It's just become a part of who you are. It's become a part of your DNA. It's become a part of what you do, how you talk, and how you view the world. And so the only way that it changes is to come to God and say, God, I need you to change this in me. Ian Bounds says it this way. I love this. It says, we shouldn't try to talk to a person about God without also talking to God about that person. I love that. So what is he saying? Before you go to that person and share Jesus with them, share truth with them at all, go to God first on your own and say, God, give me something to say. Because I don't have the words. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to speak to this situation. See, people don't just need an encounter with Jesus or just info about God. They need their heart to be regenerated. And that only comes through supernatural power. That only comes through prayer. So let me simplify it. We gotta stop judging people and start praying for people. Stop judging people and start praying for people. So what does that mean? When you're tempted to gossip about that person or you see that you know, falsehood in their life or that hypocrisy in their life, rather than talking about them, saying something about them, you go to God and say, God, help my heart first. Because every time I'm around this person, I just want to obliterate them. <laughs> So you go to God first, God, purify my heart. And then, God, I know you see that in them. I know you see those things in them, but I also know that you're good enough to deal with them. Would you do that? You see, the disciples had this same issue. In the New Testament, when we see when Jesus, he finally, he says, okay, listen, I want you to go out into these villages and you're gonna cast out demons just like I did. They're pumped up, they're excited. They get to tap into the same power that Jesus has. They are ecstatic. And they start going all throughout these villages. They're casting out demons. And they finally get to this one person and they can't cast the demon out. They've done everything that they've seen Jesus do. And the demon will not come out. So they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, look, this demon just, it will not come out. And Jesus says, I love this. He says, this kind, it won't come out unless through prayer and fasting. He says, this kind right here, it has such a stronghold on this person's life. The only way it's coming out is not by you just saying, come out. You've got to look at this person. You've got to value this person. You've got to love this person. And you pray for that person. You fast for that person. See, that takes on a whole different shape, a whole different mentality when you look at people like that. You start having compassion on them. You start praying for them. You start fasting for them. You start loving them at a completely different level. Number two, this one is hard for a lot of people. Be sensitive to what people can handle. Be sensitive to what people can handle. 
too often we say true things in the wrong time. <laughs> and, I, and I'll just tell you this. If you can't do it in the right timing, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Like, usually if you just get off of work, you had a stressful day, and you want to drop some truth bomb on somebody, probably not the best idea. Why? They're tired. They're like, just give me a few seconds to, like, catch my breath. My wife and I, we have this agreement. Like, when I get home, I, I do this every single day when I get home. I sit in my car. Okay, God, help me to be a good father. Help me to go in there. I know I have six kids. I know it's going to be a war zone when I walk in this house. Help me. And I walk in, and my wife and I just have this understanding that when, 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 when you get in, like, for us to connect, that doesn't happen right off. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to help her if she needs something, and I'm going to spend some time with the kids because I want to be there for them. Once they're in bed, then guess what? We can talk about whatever she wants to talk about. Once they're in bed and I have time to catch my breath, I can think now. The kids are in bed. It's quiet. I don't have some human being screaming in my ear. Now we can talk. Now she can tell me the truth. Now she can talk about things that have frustrated her that day. Or I can do the same. If you tell the truth in the wrong timing, it falls on deaf ears every single time. Let me say it a different way. Just because you're ready to tell somebody the truth doesn't mean they're ready. But you're like, God, I'm ready, so what? If they're not ready, then it's the wrong time. So this is, how do you know? And you have to get to know people to be able to do this. So if you know, man, they've had a terrible, awful week. Work was bad. Maybe they're dealing with a the, uh, the, uh, rough season in their marriage or kids or whatever it is. So you wait to tell them the truth. Number three. This one's quite self-explanatory. Devote yourself to listening before speaking. <laughs> How many of you are like, but I just love to talk? <laughs> God, like, God, I just love to talk. <laughs> and, and here's what, I do this in counseling all the time. And I'll sit with some people that have some tough, like, honestly, as, they, as soon as they tell me the issue, in my brain, I'm thinking, I can't help you. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. So here's what I do. The only way that I know how to help, just keep talking. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to listen. And here's what's crazy. The longer and longer and longer that people talk, they usually come to a solution. They usually just need to process it. And they usually just need somebody that's going to be patient enough not to interject their own opinions, what they think that you should do. They just need somebody to sit there and nod their head and say, yeah, tell me more. Sounds good. Oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry you had to walk through that. You sit there and you listen and then by the end of the counseling, I'm just going, okay, do you know what you need to do? I know what I need to do. How did I help you? I didn't say anything to you. <laughs> I just listened to you. People want to be understood. Can I just side note for a minute, just on your marriage? Every single time your wife or your husband is frustrated with you, it's usually because this, and they don't know how to articulate it, but it's usually because they don't feel understood. That's why they keep arguing. That's why they keep pushing the issue. You're like, would you just stop? I thought we came to a solution on this. The reason they keep going is because they don't feel like you understand what they're actually saying. Even though if you say, I understand, they, they're like, no, you haven't got it yet, okay? Devote yourself to listening before speaking. Number four, this one is huge. Be patient with the pace of God in someone's life. Be patient with the pace of God in someone's life. So, so let me paint it this way. If there was a car accident right out there this morning, and all of us came out there to look and evaluate the scene, we would all be at the same scene at the same time, but we would all see different things. All of us. 
Some of you would notice that the cars are piled up a certain way. Some of you would notice how badly hurt that person is. Some of you would notice the traffic. And we could all come together and you'd have one person that would say, what did you notice in that scene? And we would all say different things. You'd say, well, I noticed that the car was blue. No, the car was gray. (laughs) Well, I noticed that this person needed this and this person needed this. And I noticed this and I noticed that. Isn't it crazy how you can be at the same place at the same time seeing the same thing with your physical eyes and still see something different. You ever got in an argument with your spouse about that? I am pretty sure that color is blue. I am pretty sure that color is purple. And you argue about the dumbest things over and over about, no, I'm sure it's that color. You can be at the same place at the same time and see different things. It is the same thing in your walk with God. Listen to me, you have to be careful. Just because you walked in here one day and God radically transformed your life, don't be mad at your spouse because they didn't get the same experience that you did. We're all on a different journey. Listen, if we genuinely trust and believe in a sovereign God who has a plan for our life, then we also have to trust and believe that because you encountered Jesus, that he loves your spouse enough and on his timing, he'll get to them. Now, I know you don't like that answer, We don't like that answer. Because sometimes, especially when you're married, you're like, I just want them to be where I'm at. And God's saying, hold on, it took me 16 years to get to you, your old stubborn head, right? (laughs) And so just give me some time and be patient with this person. Let me put it this way. And I said this in the nine o'clock service, and I think it'll help you. Your patience promotes a God who is patient with you. Your patience with that person promotes a God who is patient with you. Your judgment promotes a God who is angry at their lack of understanding. You have to be careful. Because here's what, I'll I'll close with this. Sometimes the only Jesus that people will experience is you. The reason some people have a negative view or a bad taste in their mouth about God is simply because we've just been bad representatives. So we've communicated without even understanding it that, hey, because you're not where I'm at, God's kind of angry at you. God's frustrated at your journey. And and we say stupid things like, well, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? I I don't know about you, but I've never enjoyed and I've never seen many people enjoy this, but, and you'll never see it here at this church. I'm not all about like, hellfire and brimstone and fearing and scaring people into a loving relationship with Jesus. Do I believe in hell? Absolutely. I'm just absolutely convinced that if I keep continuing to talk about the grace and love and mercy of God, that that's enough. I don't have to scare anybody into a relationship because here's the truth. If I can scare you into one, somebody can scare you out of one. Will you come into this radical understanding of this generous God who's loved you who's been patient with you, who's accepted you, even when you've run away, even when you've come to this place, you're like, God, I'm all in. And then next week you're like, God, I'm all out. (laughs) Even when you've done that, even when you've done the seesaw and you've gone back and forth and over and over and over, God, I'll never do this again. And you do it. And it's this crazy love that God has for us where he says, I'll forgive you again. See, God's not the the God of a second chance. He's just not. He's the God of the next chance over and over and over and over. And if you come face to face with that God, that changes everything in your life. So we have to be patient with people. 
We have to be able to look at our husband and our spouse and say, one day, you'll experience what I'm experiencing. One day, and I know you feel this sense of urgency, and I'm not saying that you should, but the scripture also teaches us that it is kindness that leads people to repentance. It's not the fear tactics. It's not the, scare, it's not the shame. I'm just gonna make you feel so terrible about the life that you're living that hopefully you'll turn to God. That never works. Those are the very tactics that unfortunately some of the, the, this whole brand of Christianity has adopted where we shame people, scare people, freak people out into loving Jesus. And that's only temporary because if you radically encounter God, that'll stick with you the rest of your life. It'll stick with you the rest of your life. 